Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenholm, the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity here at the AAVMC. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm continuing our discussion about diversity in the job hunt with our friends at VetCan. And uh, we will be talking about how confident new grads and soon to be new grads are when it comes to tackling diversity issues in the clinical setting. So to discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Drs. Randy Evans, Crystal Jackson, and Rachel Sparling, all from Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. Um, and if you want to learn more about LMU specifically and practicing in Appalachia, be sure to go back to episode 29, where I interview Dr. Evans actually on site at LMU on that topic. So just scroll on back in that podcast feed. But specifically about tonight or today's episode, um, diversity continues to grow, as we all know, and it's not just around racial and ethnic dimensions. So here's some stats from the Census Bureau, as well as some other data points. Um, so the U.S. Census Bureau says that more than 350 languages are spoken in the U.S. Nearly 40 million people are living in poverty at the moment. Close to 50 million have a disability of some type. More than 300 religions are practiced in the U.S. And more than 40 million people living here were not actually born here. So we're not going to talk about immigration status, but just 40 million people off the jump out of more than 300 and plus million people. And guess what? A lot of these numbers actually overlap. So you have people who might be also um, speaking um, a language other than English at home. Um, they may have a disability and they may be living in poverty all at the same time. So you have a bunch of different kinds of dimensions um, all kind of combined to make um, a really, really diverse country. But the other thing is a lot of these people also have pets and are really need um, veterinary care. So as a result, pet ownership really may look um, really, really more diverse than it ever has before. And what it looks like to own an animal really might look different than what um, our students and our new graduates kind of conceptualize when they're in school. Sometimes we kind of look at these ivory towers and academia and we have these ideas of what pet ownership should, air quotes for those that can't see us, should look like, but that might not be reality on the ground because of um, so much diversity. So um, for veterinary students, most of whom now are white and female, some may have limited exposure and that may go for all of our students, limited exposure to just how diverse practice can be. So all walks of life might stroll or roll <laughs> through the door. So. Are our graduates ready to serve these populations and are they confident in their ability to serve these populations? So with that, before we jump right into all of the conversations, I'm gonna ask my colleagues here to introduce themselves. So Crystal, I'm gonna start with you. Okay, great. Um, so my name is uh, Crystal Jackson. I am a pretty recent graduate of LMU Vet School. I graduated in 2018. 
Um, I am a general practitioner um, in North Richland Hills, Texas. It's just um, in the DFW area right outside of Fort Worth. Um, and we see small animals and exotics. So. And Randy. Hi, uh, I'm Dr. Randy Evans. I'm the Associate Dean for Career Services and Professional Development at Lincoln Memorial University uh, College of Veterinary Medicine. And I'm very proud of Dr. Jackson and Dr. Sparling. I like to say they're one of my favorite pair of docs. Oh, and thank you. They're in our first graduating class, so they're very adventuresome and intelligent and appreciate them joining us today. Awesome, thank you. And Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel Sparling. I am practicing in two different clinics. I'm um, in Inverness, Florida currently. Um, my clinics are actually very different from each other. I'm a general practitioner, but one clinic that I'm at three days a week typically is more shelter medicine oriented. And then we have a few, what I say, real clients um, that we see there. And then my other clinic that I practice at two days a week and then sometimes on Saturdays is um, general practice, small animal. We see real clients, um, but predominantly it's snowbirds, which is um, the southern term for northerners that come down for the winter. <laughs> All right. Well, you've definitely got some diversity there. <laughs> So, um, so for both of you, Crystal and, and Rachel, let's jump in. Um, so tell us about how confident you were just kind of going into practice off the jump before we get into the diversity stuff. Rachel? I actually felt really confident um, going into practice. I feel like LMU has a different program where we do a lot of client communications um, beginning from semester one, and we also did um, clinical year and real life practices. And so it got me out there talking to um, people from all walks of life. And so it made the transition a lot easier. Great. Crystal. Um, yeah, I'd have to agree because the LMU's clinical year, they don't have a teaching hospital, so our clinical year is out in the real world, so we actually get to see more of the like day-to-day -day cases that we would in practice versus just the specialty cases that most of the teaching hospitals see. Um, so I think that really helped a lot. Um, and I was, I was very familiar with the veterinary world before vet school as well because I was a excuse me, a veterinary technician a few years before I um, went to vet school as well. So, you know, just being experienced in the world, whether you're a kennel tech, a receptionist, anything like that definitely um, helps. So you're at least kind of familiar with the terminology um, and things like that. Um, it, it really helps the confidence levels. Um, at least that's the way that I felt. Great. And Randy, so, you know, you've been doing this for quite some time. LMU isn't your first <laughs> stop on this train. So tell me a little bit about what you've seen over the years and, and how confident students and new grads, as they're about to kind of embark um, on their careers, how confident are they in general? Are your two superstars here <laughs> pretty <laughs> representative? Well, one of the things I think the veterinary colleges are really emphasizing now is not only that the students are competent, but they do have this confidence. And what all veterinary colleges and my friends at VetCan try to do 
is to match the employer expectations with the actual competence of our graduates. And if a graduate wants to go into an internship, we always want to know the reason for that. We don't want it to be because they feel like they're not confident or competent going into a general practice. So the students that go into internships, we're hoping do that because they have other plans like maybe becoming board certified. And I think what veterinary colleges are doing today is trying to take those common conditions and teach them uncommonly well. Uh, there's a lot of challenges now that we didn't see before because the use of live animals for teaching has decreased through the years. And so we've had to innovate in a lot of ways as far as using simulations. Uh, as the two doctors mentioned, having externships during the clinical year and then working on clinical problem solving abilities in those communication sessions, learning how to deal with different types of people and different situations have been very helpful, I think. Great, thanks. So with such a broad gender split, so we're 80-20, actually this year, I think we're at 81-19, so um, still losing ground there. Um, so Randy, do you see any anecdotal trends between men and women, just putting it out there, in terms of confidence? Okay, well, one thing that I think happens a lot of times, women tend not to negotiate contracts as much as men. Um, but that's one of the things that we try to help our students with and our vet can um, colleagues try to do is help them to learn how to negotiate contract, whether they're male or female, because that first offer, some veterinarians do expect you to come back with a counter offer and, mm -hmm. and negotiate. So I think that's an implied or something you sort of expect a lot of times for them to go ahead and negotiate. Um, and then I noticed that some graduates, they may put too much pressure on themselves where they do such a great job with a case, they're concerned that maybe the next time this client comes in, they don't expect them to do even better, even though they may have done perfect the first time around. So, um, and of course, women still uh, face some sexism because, you know, sometimes people want to see a male veterinarian when uh, the female veterinarian is just as good in a lot of cases, even better. And there's always that issue of mom versus medicine, whether the female veterinarian has children or not, uh, balancing that family life with their clinical life can be a stressor on them. Um, I think one of the things about men, they're less confident in expressing empathy to the client. So I think that's something that men need to work on. And of course, some cultures, are more confident in uh, expressing empathy toward others because of the way that they were raised or the way that they believe. So that's some of the differences I've noticed between men and women. But I just think that all young veterinarians and even seasoned veterinarians like myself, can, we can always learn from each other and, and grow together as a family. That's great. Any, uh, <laughs> any additional thoughts, Crystal and Rachel, on the uh, on the gender split there? Do you feel like you were more confident than your male counterparts? Not necessarily. I really think it was a pretty even playing field uh, with confidence. I don't know, maybe Crystal and I are just confident women, but I felt like we were just as confident as our male um, colleagues. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'd have to agree with that as well. Um, I'm. I didn't feel like I needed 
improvement on my confidence. <clears throat> um, so it, it felt like a pretty even playing field. Um, yeah. Great. So diversity and inclusion offerings um, vary widely <laughs> across um, all of the colleges. Um, so while students often have access to content and learning opportunities specific to diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine, um, I don't think that we've really had a conversation nationally about how confident people are at the time of graduation dealing with specifically dealing with diversity issues in practice, which I do think, I mean, they can certainly come up at any time. Um, did either of you, Crystal or Rachel, um, kind of avail yourself of, of opportunities to learn more specifically around this particular issue? And what role did it play in kind of helping you get ready? Crystal? Um, I mean, I think, again, the LMU clinical year really helped a lot with that because we were traveling so much, um, going to different areas, um, seeing different client bases um, and things like that. That really helped. Um, we'd have, you know, we'd go to a specialty practice. So obviously they're there for, you know, a big kind of surgery. So they're going to be willing to do more. But then you go to just a regular day practice and, you know, there's clients that just, you know, unfortunately just can't afford the gold standard. Um, and so you have to be able to communicate with them and, you know, what the next best treatment plan would be that can fit within their budget. I definitely think that one of the things that new graduates can do, or even um, especially in clinical year, is just take the opportunity to really, anytime that you can talk to clients, like don't shy away from it. Like practice is what really makes you good about solving um, different situations and diversity conflict. I know that, um, you know, I would do callbacks and I would always, you know, if someone was unhappy, I would try and talk to them on my on the phone during clinical year. And I just think that um, not shying away from it as a student really makes you a better doctor um, when you graduate because all, I mean, it's practice. You just got to practice at it. You're going to fumble with words and things aren't going to be right the first time. And, um, you know, you're, you're going to think you sound like an idiot, but you don't. Um, but really, it's just going out there and taking every opportunity you can during clinical year um, and before you become a real doctor, um, just to get in those situations and practice. Don't be scared. Yeah. And Randy, what is LMU offering and and um, with respect to DNI to kind of get your your students ready? Well, last week, in fact, we had a uh, conversation which was supposed to last for an hour and ended up lasting for three hours because wow. the students enjoyed it so much. We broke up into small groups and we asked their opinion of what they think we should do in the future. And it all came back to having these meaningful meaningful conversations and understand about cultural competence between uh, different groups of people. Of course, uh, our students always love food <laughs> other than pizza. <laughs> so they had suggestions of maybe having an evening where people from different cultures brought their foods from their culture. And that way we could share and talk about why they like those types of foods. And of course, having surveys and these discussion-based seminars is something that our students identified as something really important. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of the things I always look at in a clinical situation is the purpose of the animal. You know, is it just mm. used for work or is that going, you know, actually uh, an animal sleeping in the bed with the owners or, you know, what are they using the animal for and then their attachment to the pet? Because that'll help you make the right decision. And last year I heard about a um, gentleman from India and he needed to euthanize his animal, but with his cultural beliefs, he could not take an active part in the euthanasia. So he was just looking for someone to give him some medication to help ease the animal's pain mm. without actually going through the euthanasia procedure. And he went to three veterinarians before he could finally find one that understood where he was coming from and why he couldn't actively sign that paper to euthanize the animal. So having a great conversation and just trying to understand um, people's beliefs and then, you know, what they're trying to get out of that interaction helps a lot. That's that was a great example, and I think that certainly um, I've know I know a number of institutions that have had um, really great diversity and um, discussions around euthanasia specifically because I don't think that I think that folks really underestimate the role that um, culture. Um, can play um, related to, to euthanasia. I mean, um, so many, all of us have kind of these um, death rituals, like the way that we think about death and what happens after death, if anything happens after death, um, and and what um, our role in facilitating um, death is ethically and morally, right? And so um, that's uh, uh, euthanasia as a discussion point, as well as kind of a practice, really lends itself well to teaching about the importance of cultural competence and really kind of meeting your clients where where they are, right? And kind of figuring out what the best outcome for the animal is within the kind of parameters of that those belief systems and, and those types of things. And so, um, yeah, I just I tell people all the time that, that euthanasia is a really great <laughs> that sentence sounds weird. Oh, that euthanasia has really um, provides an interesting opportunity to kind of explore um, issues around diversity and inclusion in the profession. So, any comments, Rachel or Crystal? All no. right. <laughs> so, what kinds of um, diversity conflicts besides, you know, euthanasia, for example, um, are maybe folks talking about, Randy, and kind of what are some of their concerns? So we know that euthanasia might be one. Um, I certainly have heard things about pain management. Um, you know, what What else might we, uh, might, might new grads and soon-to-be new grads bump into? Well, of course, we're always concerned about microaggressions in a way that people aren't overtly aggressive towards you, but through their speech or actions, you can tell that they're trying to put you in your place, more or less. Uh, and then, of course, these implicit biases that we deal with, where it's not real obvious that the people are biased, or you don't even know that you're biased in these situations. And we have to, you know, help our students to understand that and always try to be open-minded and present themselves as a safe person, as someone that is inclusive, and, and just asking questions that, uh, in the right way, to find out the belief system and you know, what do the owners or this client want from us as far as the animal that they presented to us? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, Crystal, have you bumped into any diversity-related conflicts in your uh, almost two years of practice? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's always some out there, <laughs> no matter where. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely cases where, um, you know, they come in and, you know, I'm getting my history and trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's going on. Um, and I have my recommendations and what I feel fit for the animal. Um, but the owner is like, well, no, um, you know, I don't believe in that or... Um, you know, we don't, that's just not something that we do as a culture. Um, specifically, I've had a case, but it was euthanasia. Um, you know, the, I don't remember the specifics. It was like kind of when I was first getting out. So a while ago, um, but they, I recommended that the dog be euthanized if they weren't going to move forward with like hospitalization, um, which they weren't able to afford. Um, so I, you know, I said, that's not a wrong decision. Um, we, but then there's this, but they said that their culture didn't allow for euthanasia. Um, so we move forward with just trying to do pain management and keep that pet comfortable for whatever time it had left. Um, so you just kind of have to work around these things and kind of figure out what the the client is looking for and what they're able to and willing to do. Mm, yeah. And Rachel? Um, so I think what I most often where I'm not in practice. So um, my two clinics are extremely different from each other. Um, the shelter medicine clinic is also in an area that I would call economically challenged. And so, but it's also um, very rural Florida. If you can picture rural Florida, like we have cows and land and such, it's not all beaches and amusement parks. Um, and so I see a lot of working animals too. And so it's a different um, way I have to approach the working animals, the hunting dogs, the horses that are used for a job versus um, like Dr. Evans had mentioned earlier, um, your animals that may sleep in bed with you every single night and are more your buddy. Um, so the way that I approach that a lot of times is um, I offer obviously what I think is in the best interest of the pet, but in the end, I have to understand myself that maybe this animal has a different purpose. And so I have to respect that decision um, with, you know, that outcome. Um, some of the other things that I've found that's just interesting is we do have a lot of um, snowbirds and a lot of people that come from other areas of the country and even other countries um, to Florida for the winter particularly. Um, and so sometimes we actually have a language barrier um, between, because I, unfortunately, I don't speak any other languages. So I've actually found that Google um, Translator is really my friend. I will, I literally have like wrote in Google Translator, what I want to do, this is why I want to do it, and I know whatever language they are, I print it out and then I present it to them. And people love that, um, you know, because I'm trying really hard to communicate with them, and so they appreciate that too. So that's um, another thing. Don't like use Google Translator for anyone that needs it out there. It's awesome to talk with your clients. If you don't have someone that speaks the language, it's your friend. <laughs> Does okay with medical terms? Yeah, it does. It's um, surprisingly, it does really well. So I haven't had any problems um, trying to like 
like if I say antibiotic, I don't always like put the specific antibiotic, you know, like I try and use general terms, but um, it does really well. Great. I think that that's also interesting too, and kind of um, when you have to use an additional tool to communicate, it makes things less jargony. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine. So, um, so uh, there are lots of opportunities to learn about communication. I'm sure that both of you have already had to deal with conflict <laughs> and conflict resolution and, and even kind of maybe pushing back on some of these things. And, and Randy talked about kind of the microaggressions and, um, you know, well, where's the doctor? <laughs> have you run into that? I've definitely um, ran into the clients that want to challenge me, um, like, oh, you're too young to be a vet, which I, like, am very, very flattered because I'm in my early 30s. I'm like, thanks, guys, for thinking I'm so young. Um, but I, I've gotten that, but I've also gotten the, well, um, you know, I've been a bovine manager for so many years and this is the way we do it and so I've definitely gotten the different pushback um I think in the end I have to like take deep breaths um because whenever I get challenged I sometimes I just like shut down but take deep breaths and really try and explain it to my best of ability but I'll be honest um in the end, I'm here to advocate for the animal. And sometimes like we don't get um, a resolution. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I think that's okay. I think that we think that we always have to like come up with a resolution. And sometimes the resolution, honestly, um, is maybe you don't trust me and maybe I'm not the best veterinarian for you. And I've had to do that before whenever, um, you know, I totally thought that um, it's not in the best interest of the animal and yet um, maybe my client wants to push back and um, wants to, you know, challenge me a little bit more. And so um, I think that's okay. I think that we sometimes as new grads, we forget that, that sometimes that's okay to come to that decision. Mm. Crystal? Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I've, you know, walked into a room, introduced myself as Dr. Jackson, was explaining my whole like physical exam as I'm going through it. And when I'm done, I ask if they have any questions and they say, well, when is the doctor coming in? I'm like, well, well that's me. So hello. <laughs> But um, yeah, so I get the definitely the the age question, you know, I'm too young to be a doctor. Um, but then, you know, I just talk to them and, you know, say, well, you know, I went through the schooling just like anybody else did. Um, and, you know, I go through the physical exam again and, you know, then they're like, oh, that's what you were saying. Okay. <laughs> um, so I definitely get that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely pushback from, you know, I've had um, MDs come in and say, oh, well, that's not how we do it in humans. And I'm like, well, that's why I'm here. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's definitely, you're going to get pushback, but I mean, you definitely have to, again, like Rachel said, you're advocating for the animal. So you just have to kind of stand your ground um, and just let them know that that's the best interest of the animal. And yeah, you know, like she said, if, if they don't agree with that, they can go find a second opinion if they'd like. Yeah, yeah. 
So what advice um, can you give uh, those behind you in terms of navigating kind of some of these issues? So both of you kind of, um, well, you mentioned we've talked about a number of things. So we talked about kind of those microaggressions um, and kind of maintaining and staying present and not shutting down, but also, you know, when you have those difficult conversations with clients about um, an inability to afford um, certain kinds of care and you want to be here, you want to have that high, as high a standard as you possibly can, and they can't, they can't do that. Um, pet ownership can't doesn't look like that for them um, versus this kind of utilitarian animals that they have um, for some folks where um, there is certainly a bond, a human animal bond, but it's um, but it's it's different, right? It's different. So what advice would you give um, that you maybe wish you knew <laughs> two years ago um, to you know your colleagues coming behind you? So um, one of the things is I offer what I think is the best medicine. Always offer what you think is the best medicine. It's okay if they can't afford the best medicine. That's fine. Um, you're still going to help the pet. Um, and so like I always start out and I offer the best medicine. And if they say, well, I can't do this and I can't do this and I can't do this. I'm like, that's okay. You know, we'll go to plan D. That's fine. And so, you know, we move down our list. And we do the best within a budget. And sometimes, like, I'll be honest, with shelter medicine, you really got to get MacGyver and, like, figure out some stuff. And the same thing with the area that the shelter medicine practice is in. Um, and I always, this, I always leave it with a plan. Like, hey, you know, we may not be able to do this today, but if the pet doesn't respond or um, or if it declines, you know, I'd really like to see it back in, you know, this many days. And this is what I'd like to do as the next step. It gives them a few days to um, figure out like, oh, can I come up with this money? Or, um, you know, if, um, or it gives the pet a few days to actually respond to what you're trying, um, or can I borrow the money, care credit, et cetera. Um, but it gives them a plan. I also think it's really, really, the clients like to see that as not like, oh, she's just going to run all of these diagnostics and cost me all of this money. But if you show them like the steps and like, you know, I want to start here. If this doesn't work, then let's definitely do this next step. I think breaking it down um, is good. And I actually think I get better um response whenever I break it down I'm like okay you know let let's do blood work today and maybe we can't do radiographs at this time um but if the pet's not responding from the treatment you know radiographs really are that next step and so you know seven days goes by eh, and they're like okay let's do those radiographs where initially they're like no I can't afford that but breaking it down into little increments sometimes that makes the biggest difference mm -hmm. um and I think you get a lot of um, compliance from your clients that that way. Mm. Also, you have to understand that, you know, if you have a pet that is really suffering and unfortunately they can't afford the best medicine. Um, I mean, I always try, since I'm in a shelter medicine, let me see if the shelter will be able to take it in. Let me see, you know, things like that because I'm a sucker <laughs> and I try for that stuff, but it doesn't always happen. Sure. Um, and sometimes, 
you know, the best thing I tell them um, is euthanasia. And that's being compassionate. That's being selfless. And that's okay. Even though you know, like it stinks because you know, sometimes I can fix that pet. Like I can. Um, but if they can't afford it, um, you know, you don't want that pet to suffer. And euthanasia really is sometimes the next best option. Yeah. And even just advocating kind of for those owners for a moment, just recognize that incredibly difficult yeah. owners, um, right? It's very difficult for owners. Not only are they losing their animal, but they're losing their animal and they're kind of being reminded that there's an affordability, an economic issue there, right? And that's why I talk about pet ownership maybe looking different um, because the, that loss of a pet is still a loss of a pet, right? But knowing that you lost your animal because you might not have been able to afford kind of um, the best medicine is also challenging. It's hard, right? And it probably compounds grief. And that's something that, you know, we really need to be thoughtful and empathetic about. Um, that that's, it's, it's difficult for you all as professionals, but it's, it's also really difficult for clients um, to kind of have that reckoning, that economic reckoning, if you will, um, and realization. So, Crystal. Yes. Yeah. So what advice would you give? Uh, say that again. I couldn't hear you. What advice would you give to, to new grads um, navigating, um, you know, diversity conflict? Yeah, so I mean, I'm definitely along the same long along the same lines as Rachel. As far as you know, you always want to offer that gold standard, you know, treatment protocol um, initially, um, and let them know, you know, this is what's best, and this is what you know what I would recommend. Um, and then, yeah, like Rachel was saying, you know, well, you know, some clients will be like, well, I can't afford that, so then we move to Plan B. Sometimes even a Plan C, and you know, they still can't afford things. Um, so you just kind of move along the lines and, you know, okay, well, if it comes down to it, let's just try some medication and see if they improve. Um, and then if there's no improvement, come back and we can do, you know, maybe this one step or maybe two steps, you know, whatever else they're going to be able to do. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, clients don't really grasp the full concept because it's a lot of information that we're throwing at them kind of all at one time. So, you know, if, if they're like, oh, well, I don't think we really need that, they'll just say, no, I can't afford it. Um, but then you try the medications and then they see that the pet's not improving. So they're like, okay, well, maybe I really do need to do this. Um, so, I mean, I, I kind of get that a lot as well. But yeah, I always, you know, I, I've had a number of, of patients who have come down with, you know, acute conditions um, where the owner is not able, you know, unfortunately to financially do anything about it. And I always tell them, you know, you have to take care of yourself first. Um, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of any kind of animal or your family or anything like that. So like Rachel was saying, you know, sometimes humane euthanasia is the next best thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, going to switch gears as we begin to, to wrap up. Um, Randy, I have a question for you. 
um, specifically about what you all are teaching, coaching students about social media. So, so much of um, social media is a drag, but so much <laughs> great. Um, but certainly a lot of diversity related stuff plays out online, right? We know that it plays out online. I, I am um, a devout uh, uh, tweeter. <laughs> Like I hang out and I probably voyeur um, watch a lot more than I tweet, but I I see a lot um, and certainly on Facebook and Instagram and all of those kinds of things. So, um, Randy, what advice are you all giving the good students at LMU about social media? Because the other thing is that when you're looking for a job, social media checks are a thing and a lot of employers kind of look at that. Um, things are really political right now. There's a lot of noise um, and um, diversity rants can, can, can spiral pretty quickly. So what are you all telling folks about social media that everybody in the profession should probably take take a pause and do? Well, I think we should always think twice before we post something. Or time. <laughs> and uh, I think Abraham Lincoln gave us a good example because oftentimes he would write letters at night to people that he's having conflicts with. And then the next morning he would get up and throw them away or burn them in the fire. And he never would send them to the folks. But it made him feel better just to sort of vent on the paper and then get rid of the evidence, so to speak. Uh, but I think some of the things that are really important are to be authentic. Uh, whenever you're responding to someone or you see something online that you really don't agree with and they'll say, you know, this is my opinion. I'm not representing the whole school, representing the clinic. And then consider the audience and think about what they're going through themselves. Because oftentimes, you know, an animal is sick and, you know, it's on the way out of this world. And um, you have to consider that this has been this pet has been part of their family for a number of years. But I think it's really important to always think about, you know, the concept of community. We're all part of one big community and we need to support each other. And uh, I think by supporting others, they, they'll turn around and support you. And then um, as Dr. Rachel and Dr. Chris have been talking about, you know, bring that value to the conversation. Because now not only social media post is postings, but also people are getting on Dr. Google and, you know, with their own diagnosis and treatment, which really can be harmful to the animals in a lot of way. And, and pay attention to what people are saying and, and see what the meaning is behind what they're writing. Because uh, sometimes things can be written and you really don't mean it to be mean, but just the way some people can interpret it um, can be taken in the wrong way. So I think trying to find out from the people, you know, why did you write this and, you know, what were you trying to get across? And then just, you know, be transparent in the end and let them know, you know, that you do care about the animal and uh, address these issues immediately. I always like to think about, you know, bitterness is like uh, drinking a poison and waiting on the other person to die. (laughs) Because, you know, sometimes people don't realize that you're mad at them or something has happened um, that has upset you and they just think, you know, I wrote this and I feel better. And then oftentimes by enjoy, in, engaging that conversation, they'll come back and apologize because they realize that they um, wrote things in the wrong way. But 
I think one of the more important things, um, you know, with social media or any kind of interaction with the clients and the owners, um, and, I, and Crystal and Rachel will find this out in a few years, because when you start your practice, you know, you're going to have young puppies come in, and then maybe 10 or 12 years down the road, you're going to have that patient die, and it's going to be a loss for you also. So it's going it's going to be heartbreaking for you because as veterinarians, we see deaths of our clients, uh, or excuse me, death of our patients um, four times more than a human physician does, and, you know, unless someone's in oncology. But we follow that animal throughout their whole life, and uh, they become a part of us too. But um, I think just being considerate and remembering you know, that we are part of a community and that, you know, these social media posts, they do hurt, uh, but we need to respond in the right way. Yeah, yeah. Not everything needs to be shared. Not everything needs to be shared. And not everything needs to be responded to. Very true. <laughs> the scroll function is 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 a lifesaver. I tell people that all the time. Scroll on by. And if you really, really want to engage someone, slide into their DMs. Like you don't need to keep that all public. Like go go behind go behind the veil. So any uh Crystal and, and Rachel, any good advice on uh social media? Um, yeah, I would say I would agree with the just for the most part, try not to engage um, because you you think that you may be helping and, you know, you may get through to like one person, but um, it may backfire very quickly. Yeah. Don't engage. That's my rule. And I do the Abraham Lincoln thing. I'll write out this response a lot of times and I'll read it and be like, okay, delete. I feel better now, but, you know, um, it, just don't engage. There's so many things where um, you're not going to change people's minds a lot of times on something, no matter um, how hard you try, or even if you are right, you're still not going to change their mind. They just want to rant and rave. And sometimes that's all they need to do is get stuff off their chest to make them feel better. So not engaging, I think a lot of times is really the best option. Yeah. So again, Hit that scroll feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on by. <laughs> so um, I have one last question um, for each of you. What do you, um, and uh, Crystal, we're going to start with you. What do you wish new grads had to feel more confident in general? What do you think would make them feel more confident um, and in general and specifically around diversity kind of skills? Um, so, you know, I do think it's, you know, just a kind of about getting out there and actually speaking with people, you know, if you have the opportunity to speak with a client, um, do it, um, as a new grad, um, a lot of hospitals will like have their technicians go in the room and go over estimates and things like that, or have technicians do callbacks. Um, I'm, I'm not for that. Um, I think it, it helps me, um, to go into the room, go over the estimate, go through line item by line item. That way if the, the client has questions, the tech can't answer, then they're coming out asking me or, and then going back in. So it just kind of eliminates a whole step process and I'm able to explain things exactly why we want to do this and why this is needed to be done. Um, so, I mean, just talking with the clients um, is definitely a big help, um, any chance that you can get. Um, and I think that helps build your confidence level as well because you're you're explaining things, you're going over things. So, you 
it just, it just helps boost that confidence level as well. Um, so in clinical years, you know, when you, when you have that opportunity, don't just sit back and be a fly on the wall, engage in the conversation in the exam rooms. Um, if, Obviously, the position there allows that, um, or you know, maybe talk with the the leading physician that you're going in the room with and say, "Hey, I'd really like to, you know, get in on this conversation and you know, try to work that out um, to where you're able to do that." Um, and for me, when I was doing clinical rotations, some of the hospitals would allow me to do some of the callbacks, um, so I think that really helped as well. Um, I think sometimes it's easier to talk on the phone than it is to talk in person. So maybe starting with some callbacks, that can be helpful. Um, but um, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say like fake it till you make it kind of confidence thing, but it kind of is, but you still have to know your limitations to where you're going to need to ask for help or ask for mentoring and things like that. So I think mentorship is a, a huge thing um, when you're looking for jobs. Um, that That is a big thing that really helped me out. Um, so just things like that. And you, you know more than you think you do. Um, so... And it's nothing wrong with fake it till you make it. It's <laughs> a lot of us live and die by that. Rachel. <laughs> um, so yeah, just to mimic what Crystal said, anytime the students are in clinical years and you have the chance to talk to your clients, do it. Because uh, you're only you'll get better when you talk to clients. Um, take those callbacks, call, um, do things over the phone. Um, I think that that was some of the most beneficial things. And if you're um, lucky enough to go to LMU, you're going to have all of those uh, scenarios that we do from the beginning. Like, that was invaluable. Um, I think that my my um, bosses, they say, you know, they've had new grads that have worked for them before and they say, you know, what they lack is that they lack client communications. They just can't talk to um, clients that well. Um, but they were really impressed with what how well LMU really prepared me to do that because we practice. And that's honestly, so even if you aren't part of LMU's curriculum, get together with a buddy, you know, someone else in vet school, make up scenarios like, you know, um, any different type of diversity that you can think of and work through it because the more you say it out loud, the easier it's going to be when you have to really say it out loud. Um, so even if you don't have the opportunity um, to do that in your curriculum, Find a friend in vet school because they need the help too, trust me, and go ahead and practice it. <laughs> great, great suggestion. Role play, role play, role play. Awesome. And last but certainly not least, Randy, what do you wish new grads had to feel more confident about all of this stuff? Well, as, as far as addressing diversity questions, uh, I think one thing we have to all learn is not to rely on stereotypes. Because oftentimes people say a certain breed of dog is aggressive, so we can't go by that. And just realize that some cultures tend to be more silent when they're communicating. And there's going to be those long pauses, which can be, you know, a little bit unnerving at first, but you just realize uh, who you're dealing with. And other people talk constantly. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to get a break in there, but don't just rely on, on stereotypes as far as, as dealing with a different type of people. And I think sometimes we make the mistake that we interpret others as far as their behaviors and values and beliefs through our 
own cultural lenses. So always step back and, you know, try to look at things or put yourself in their shoes and see exactly where they're coming from. Um, I always like to think about a story of this uh, young girl. She saw her mother baking a ham and her mother always cut the ends off of both ends of the ham and then put it into the, the pan and she couldn't figure out why that happened. And her mom said, I don't know, let's go ask your grandmother. And finally went all the way back to the great grandmother and the great grandmother said, I do that because the pan I had was only that long. <laughs> and so there's really no big philosophy of why they cut the ends of the ham off. And so we have to realize that, that sometimes people do things that we don't understand and we just have to, you know, put ourselves in their place and try to understand where they're coming from. And you know, getting back to the, the social media thing, I think responding in a private way, uh, like Crystal and Rachel getting, you know, don't respond online because that just uh, causes inflammatory situations. We don't want that to happen. But yeah. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to participate, and I sure am proud of Dr. Jackson, Dr. Sparling, and all of our graduates. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been a great discussion. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Drs. Crystal Jackson, Randy Evans, and Rachel Sparling, thank you so much for being a part of the show. I want to shout out all of the recent NAVLI takers, and I especially want to shout out those of you who may not have passed. This is not the end. And in fact, you should check out episode 24 of the podcast. Um, yes, shameless plug. It's called Life After NAVLI, featuring former SAVMA president Matt Holland and former VETCAN member Jenna Hartwell at North Carolina State. Um, Matt actually is very open about his journey with NAVLI. He did not pass the first time. It's a great episode. Um, so we know that you're out there and you might not be hanging out on social media because there are so many, I passed, um, kind of circulating around right now. So it might be a little Little bit of a, a tough time, but trust there is life after Navli episode 24. So with that, be sure to subscribe to Diversity and Inclusion on Air on your favorite podcast app and be sure to like us and follow us on Facebook. And with that, we will bring this episode to a close. Thank the three of you again, and we will check you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.